This is Leswa, a podcast dedicated to the phenomenal women that come from out of Africa. Okay, my name is Phoebe Potts, and I am sitting in the interviewer's chair today. I want to introduce the first guest of Leswa, who will, from now on, be the inter- main interviewer. But today we want to hear about the woman who's starting this podcast and um, the story behind her. Please introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. My name is Lily Wandusind. I am originally from Addisaba, capital city of Ethiopia. Um, I am currently living in Boston, and I'm very excited to be here getting interviewed by the lovely Phoebe. Um, I think this is going to be a great interview, and uh, it's a chance for everyone to find out what podcast, why I started this podcast, what this means to me, and what I hope to get what I hope people um, would get out of this. Tell us what Leswa means. Leswa means, um, it's an Amharic word meaning for her. Um, It definitely took some time for me to think about what I wanted to call this podcast. I went through different names. Um, I actually don't know how I landed on this word, but... um, I, you know, sometimes I was sitting with my mom and my cousin thinking about what to call this podcast, and I kept asking, give me a word that would resonate with people but also empower women. Um, so I landed on, uh, on the word leswa, and it means for her, and the reason why I chose it because, um, you know, the women that I'll be interviewing, obviously inter- be interviewing is, um, you know, phenomenal women who have excelled in their specific industries or um, their jobs, their lives, they've committed their entire journeys to helping others but I also want a lot of young women the you to get inspiration out of the, the stories that these women are telling so okay so the name of the podcast is less what means for her right and you're interested in telling women's stories to other women right why is there a need for this podcast why do we need to hear these stories I you know growing up I I felt like I was surrounded by lots of amazing women, my mother, uh, my grandmother, my aunts, and I was always inspired by them. I was, you know, I was raised by a single mom. So, you know, her story, I know her story, but I feel like if others were able to hear her journey, her um, triumph, her struggle, um, and her success, they would find the same aspirations and inspiration that I got out of from being her being my mother, um, I think there's a lot of women that could hear those kind of journeys, especially um, as a woman who is who's has migrated to the city, to America, without having a lot of things in, in this country, without knowing a lot of people, and starting out from basically nothing and not knowing how to speak the language. There's a lot of women that come and do that um, for, you know, whether that's Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia. Um, and women need to hear these stories so they can know that, you know, they, they too can make it in this world. Are you, and so it sounds like you're talking about sort of the immigration experience right. from the Horn of Africa to America. Do you imagine, um, are you saying, when you say that they can make it, are you talking about they can be successful in America? Or are you talking about a, a success in a, in a, on a larger in a larger way? I certainly, you know, success doesn't have to be quantified. It doesn't have to be, you know, contained to whether you live in America or in Ethiopia. You know, success is what you define it. And if that's being successful within, as a mother, Mm -hmm. um, you're being successful 
if that's if you're being successful as a top tech tech you know industry leader at Google, you're successful. Uh, but you know it kind of is nice to see someone like you doing those type of things, whether you're um, you know running a store, running a big corporation. Um, a surgeon, a philanthropist, doing those things, and you see, your, and you want to see yourself doing some of those things that they're doing. It kind of makes you feel like you too can be there. Um, mm. and, and success, you can define your success. But if you s see someone that looks like you and has your story, comes from the same background, it makes the journey a little bit more, um, for lack of a better word, easier. But you know, um, possible. Possible. So before, I want to ask you about your own background, and you mentioned your mother and your grandmother, and I can tell there's a lot of really good stories there. Yeah. But before I do, um, I want, when you're saying that if you can see it or if you can hear about it, then you can believe it or you can strive for it also. Yeah. So tell, tell you, I know you've done a little research. Tell us about what are the limitations for uh, women from East Africa that this these roads to success wouldn't be so obvious for them? Um, you know, Ethiopia being one of the fastest growing economies in this country, and, excuse me, Ethiopia is one of the fastest growing economies in the world, um, but the story of the women is, is untold in that success story, and women don't get to have contribution to that story as much as the men do. And a lot of the reason is due to, you know, cultural norms or society's expectation that has been implemented for so many years. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's ignorance sometimes. Uh, men tend to do some of the things knowing that this is actually wrong. But this is something that they've been taught from their grandparents, their grandpa, their fathers. Um, and, and I think the, the journey and this, the, the movement has begun for women to take place and to step up and lead. Um, but that success story, that rate is so much lower for a woman than it is for a man, especially in developing countries. Tell us and tell us like what are some of the, give us some data about what, um, what can a girl expect who grows up in either the southern part of Ethiopia or in Eritrea, Somali, like if she's not in a major city, let's say. Right. Not that that's necessarily different. What can... What can she expect? What are her choices uh, when she wants when she becomes an adult? Um, so, you know, twenty percent of girls um, aged fifteen to twenty-four have no education, while thirty-five percent cannot read. I think that's a staggering data for in which country? In Ethiopia. Wow. So say that again slowly, so we can really absorb that. Um, 20% of girls aged 15 to 24 have no education, while 35% cannot read. Wow. Right. 20% of girls. That's a very high literacy rate. Right. And, you know, that, you know, education is the pillar of all things. You know, if a, if a girl's not educated, she's mostly at home. If she's not going to school, she's not receiving the proper education, the proper, um, you know, information for her to educate herself to properly get married, to leave and start her own life. Um, when a woman doesn't re receive an education, she is most likely getting married at a significantly young age. Mm. What that leads to is her getting um, a child at a significant age. Because she's so young, she might not actually have that child. She might experience a stillbirth um, because she's so young to, to give birth. Mm. Her body's just not formed properly yet. Mm. Um, sometimes when you're going, you know, you're experiencing stillbirths, you might go through something called fistula. Mm. Um, 
and that just leads to so many repercussions for women in developing countries um, where now she is a, a burden, considered to be a burden to her family. Wow. Um, now she's um, outcasted from her f husband's um, her home, from her family's home. Um, and she's left alone. And these are, you know, some of the staggering information that we hear and statistics that we women deal with. Um, and women like Mommy Too, who's a surgeon actually, um, who is a, a phenomenal surgeon in the Fistula Hospital, works on these women and kind of, you know, revives them and provides them with free surgeries to repair some of the uh, damage that was caused because of the stillbirth. And these are the type of women that I want to interview and bring to light. These are the women that are changing lives for so many young women who are experiencing life or death. So it sounds like not only uh, by, to say the surgeon's name again, who you would love to interview? Her name is Mami Tu. So Mami Tu is being interviewed. You're hearing about the great work she's doing, which is inspiring. But she's also telling us about uh, what life is like right. for these women in the country. And interestingly enough, Mami Tu actually was a patient herself. No. Right. She was one of the first patients that um, Dr. Hamlin had. Dr. Hamlin is the Australian doctor who went back to Ethiopia with her husband and started this hospital. Um, and Mamitu came as a patient, and she ended up um, surviving this tragic event in her life. And she started operating on, she started helping Dr. Hamlin through the surgeries, and she became one of the chief surgeons in the hospital. And now she trains people from around the world that come and, you know, work on surgeries for women around wow um and she's a phenomenal woman and her story deserves to be told um as an inspiration for many many young women hmm tell us okay so tell us about uh you tell us about um what part would you like to do i want to know the whole thing i want to know willie's entire background so where should we begin we know you're from Addis. we know yeah. you live in boston right Tell us how that happened. Uh, well, my story starts, um, like you said, I'm from Addis. I moved to Boston when I was eight. Um, and I came in the middle of December. And I remember being um, confused, a little bit confused, because it was freezing. And I'd never really experienced snow before. Um, so I remember my mom giving me this this big white jacket and she's telling me to put it on. I said, Mom, why am I putting this jacket on? She's like, it's freezing, put it on. Um, anyway, so, you know, after a year or two, I got acclimated to living in Boston and learning the language um, much more efficiently, being able to communicate with my classmates. Um, but I still, well, you know, what my mom did really, I, which I thank her for, is she always sent me back home during the summers. Mm -hmm. um, back home to Addis. Back home to Addis, and that has impacted my life in significant ways because I never really forgot what home was for me. Um, every time I go back, I would come back feeling, you know, energized and so in love with my country and my, you know, my sefer, as we call it, our, our little area. Um, and so I just always had this affinity for where I come from. You would think coming out of such a young age, I would forget some of the stuff. Sure. Um, but I didn't, so I tried to stay as I got older, you know, into high school in Boston, then I went to BU um, for undergrad. I was always committed to my community. I would um, go to events that were hosted in Boston. 
I would teach, um, I would work with young kids and teach them dance, um, young women, to really make them... Well, and can you tell us about what kind of dance? Yep, so the dance, it depends. Sometimes we would do skista, we would do guraginya, we would do um, all the dances that reflected all the regions of Ethiopia, as much as we can, about five of them. Um, and I loved it. Like it, that, that wasn't a burden for me. Um, I loved seeing the young women dance to their own cultural music. And these are most of the women were born here, so they haven't really had the chance to interact. Hmm. Um, back like things like they haven't had the chance to go back home. So being able to learn how to dance in Skista or you know hearing the music as much as they were, mm-hmm. it was it made me happy. Um, so ever since then, I just felt like I was always committed to going back home and what really you know a, a pivotal point in my life is actually after BU I after I graduated I went back home and I thought I'm going to be there for a month I bought my round trip ticket I you know, I went with some of my friends um, some of my best friends and I ended up staying there for five months and I had uh, a great experience. I um, visited like what we consider the premier hospital in Addis, and I, you know, I saw the emergency hospital, and I just, you know, I broke down crying because I said, "This is crazy. There's just so many people that are, you know, dying, and you know, how could I be of help?" And I thought, "Wait, describe what you saw, because not all our listeners maybe know." Right. I'm sorry, um, all your listeners. Um, <laughs> You know, some of the things I saw were were very sad. You know, you saw when people sleeping on the floor in the emergency room, mm. waiting for somebody to be attended to, you know, mm. to attend to them. Um, or you would see, you know, the um, the hand sanitizer was legitimately rubbing alcohol, like it was just plain alcohol. Mm. Um, and you can imagine the damage that was causing to these doctors' hands, and um, the waiting areas were ridiculous. Um, Why? They just were, they were outside. Like, your waiting area was outside, mm. waiting for your family to come out of the hospital. Um, if you were a cancer patient and you needed radiation, you needed to get on a waiting list. Mm. Um, so things just like that made me think about how much of an impact that I wanted to have in my country. And all in all, when I started thinking about this, creating this platform for women, and I said, um, I need to showcase some of the excellence that was coming out of these countries. Um, So young people in this country or whoever's drawing inspiration could really understand the growth and success of our country, but also that there is work that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that some of these people who have gained some sort of inspiration can go back to, you know, their countries and contribute in some shape or form. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I, I, I see myself growing, of course, but also continuing to love and you know support my country in any shape where I can whether that's dancing or doing this podcast um but I want to be in a place where I can contribute um um you know obviously financially would be great but more of in a place where I can contribute to my country's growth cultural growth um you know, potential, like really inspiring the the women leaders that come out of that country. And I think we're at such a great time where our technology is growing, our investments, our foreign investments are growing, and we have a new prime minister that just got, you know, um, sworn in, and he's doing phenomenal work. And this this new excitement, this new wave is a great time for a lot of people. He's a very young man too, right? Very, very young man, considerably young man, who is 
um, intelligent and thoughtful and is now unifying so many countries. Um, and there's a lot that we can Wait, do. You mean unifying countries? Unifying countries, yeah. So, Like he, allegiances with other African nations? Or? Yeah, so he, you know, as some of our listeners may know, you know, Eritrea and Ethiopia were on some fighting terms for a very long time, but he has, you know, spoken to the president of Eritrea, um, Isaiah Safawagi, and he's, you know, been in communication and now has implemented so many rules to, not rules, but peace agreements to make those countries whole. And that's been a 20-year disagreement. Mm -hmm. And for him to do that is a testament to his leadership quality. So I'm excited for the growth of that space. Mm. And um, I'm just, we're just willing to ride on and see where they could take us. What's it like, can you tell us a little bit about, so for people who have only grown up in one place, even if they've, they are of Ethiopian descent, but they were born here yeah. and they were raised here in the States. For you, you've had this unique experience. Not only were you, you have your early child, your formative years were there, but then your mother made sure that you kept this real, like a very tangible connection. So you right. this, these summers going back and then this five month, supposedly one month and it stretched into five months yeah, yeah. after college. Do you, when, I guess my question is, I want to know, when you're here, do you feel Ethiopian? And when you're there, do you feel American? Like, how do you kind of square your identity when you're in these different places? I mean, that's a great question. I think um, when I go back, I do sense my, um, my American identity, but not willingly. I think it's, sometimes it's obvious that you are no longer a resident of that country. Um, and those things are pointed to you without you wanting it. Um, you mean people notice? People notice. Right. Um, you don't even have to talk. People notice the way you look, the way you walk, the way you carry yourself. Your mannerisms completely mm. change. Uh, and sometimes that makes me feel uncomfortable because I try myself, I try to really be immersed when I go back home. And um, I try to take super local taxis and hang out with my friends that I grew up with and really immerse myself in the way that I used to live when I was young. Um, but when I'm here, um, I try to, you know, by I identify as an Ethiopian American. Um, but I think I tend to carry my Ethiopian identity much more heavier on my sleeve. Um, it's just it resonates with me much more stronger than um, the, the the latter. Mm -hmm. With that being said, I am forever grateful for being here and having the opportunities that were given to me and and growing up here. Um, but I, I would say, even if I was here, I would, I would identify as being more Ethiopian. And, then, and that's due to the fact that I'm so in tune with some of the stuff that was happen that's happening in our culture, that's happening in our community. Um, yeah, I'm probably that person who, if you, my friends think this is a joke, but like if we're at a party, I would take the Oxford and play Ethiopian music. And <laughs> nobody has an idea of what the song is, but I would play it. <laughs> because we hear one Ethiopian song at a party. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, my friends hate me for it, but. Um, do you, so um, tell us more now about, um, tell us about your mom and tell us about your grandmother and, um, Tell us how you knew what you saw, uh, specifically that these were phenomenal women that had that whose stories you now want to. Right. Um, I I'll start off with my grandmother. 
Um, unfortunately, I didn't have the chance to know a lot about my grandmother. She died um, when I was a little younger. But from what I know, she was um, the pillar of our family. She um, She's very hardworking. She took... My grandfather was more of the nonchalant, but, you know, he's orderly too, but he was away on, you know, work or um, doing other things. So my grandmother was, you know, the center of our family. And what she was took, his work, just so we know? Um, he had his own honey wine business. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, for listeners, honey wine in Amharic, it's called Dej. And so he had a very successful honey wine business, and he ran that very well. And... Um, my grandmother was, you know, in the background helping him and assisting him, but she was also taking care of so many kids. You know, I remember the household never being empty. She, um, it was always, my grandfather always brought kids from different areas, different villages, and my grandmother was also be the one cooking and taking care of and housing and educating. So she was, you know, she was leading by force. She was also leading by, by example, and I think my mother took a lot from her. My mother is the oldest of our family. Um, I was actually talking to her yesterday, and she told me, um, you know, she wanted to, after she graduated high school, she didn't have the grade point average to go into college, so she did what um, we would call in this country, like, a vocational school, so she left the house at a young age and went to this place called Nazareth, where she started taking typing classes, and um, she she trained for two years, and the fastest typer would get a job and um she wait to, was that that was like that's what the teacher said yeah like that was the criteria like she typed really well and really fast wow and um, she got hired at this uh, textile corporation factory in this place called mojo um and she loved it um and she was getting paid 50 bir a month not very much money no it's like two dollars right now <laughs> american dollars and but at the time, 50 bur was a lot to her, and so... She was she lived, living with her family, or she had moved out? So she was living with my great-aunt, my aunt in, in Nazareth. Okay. Um, and then after she got hired, she moved and got her own place, and then that's where she got, she met my father also. So stop, pause right there for a second. Yeah. So given the data you gave us before, yeah. so already I'm hearing that, although your mom didn't have the GPA, she was able to get an education through high school. Right. And um, And she also got to live outside of her house... Not, but before being married, right? So, was your were your grandparents uh, different than other Ethiopian families, or was this normal if you were an Addis, or how did this? Um, it was more of out of necessity. She was the oldest, and she needed to go out and help. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think my grandfather was as you know happy or you know jubilant about the fact that she had to leave the house, but. It was also something that she needed to do, and she told me, she was like, I wanted to grow, and I wanted to um, really expand my accomplishments. And, but typically, Addis is a very um, modern city than any of the other neighboring uh, countrysides. Um, so she was able to do that and do it successfully, and I think um, for her to move out and support her family back in Addis was a big deal for her. Um, and so hearing that yesterday, I was like, wow, mom, you're getting paid 50 bit? That's not a lot of money, but... Not only was she sustaining herself, but she was also sustaining her parents and her siblings. She really? was sending money back home. Yeah. Wow. She was sending money back home for holidays and things like that and support. Um, so she has always I, one of the best work ethics and is a, a, a force to be reckoned with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I admire her for that. She's a very, she's like a 
Iron Lady of our house. Um, she wanted, for me, what she didn't have, even though... Which was I, what? You know, the resources of going to school, um, picking out a career that I wanted to, being independent. But, I mean, what she doesn't know is that some of the things that she did was, and she continues to do, serves as a huge inspiration for me. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I, I thank her for that. It's, mm. it's an equal, it's a mutual beneficial relationship that we have. Would you talk about um, coming here for her and coming and how, tell about your story about, you told us you came when you were eight. Yeah. But I know that you didn't come with her. Right. So can you tell a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so my when my parents won this thing called uh, the you could win a lottery to come to the states, um, she um, she came with my dad and they left me with my grandparents. Um, so I was I lived with my grandparents for about five years. So I didn't see my mom often. The only time I would see her is for my birthdays, and she we would have the biggest birthday parties because she would come to town and um, all my family members would come. And we'd throw a big party. But that's the only time I saw my mom. So when I came to the States, I was, um, I didn't know this woman. Like, you know, five years is a big part of your life, especially at a significant yeah. young age. So okay. a lot of development has happened. I was, has, I've already developed my own like personality and opinions. I was eight. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a very, the learning curve of building this trusting relationship and mother and daughter relationship was very steep. Um, and to this day, we can't, we continue to build on our relationship to, to, to strengthen it, but it was hard. It was definitely hard to adjust to living in America, you know, perfecting English, learning English, and also knowing this woman. And now right. it was just me and her. Right. I came from this really, really big household where we always had people and to be me, her, and my aunt. That and was it. That was it. Wow. So it was a huge adjustment. In New England. <laughs> and it's cold. <laughs> it was cold. It was in New England. It was um, gray and brown. Right. <laughs> and and um, is hot. Nice, beautiful, right, fun. colorful city. Yeah. It, it was definitely a, a change, but um, I definitely learned to adjust really quickly and grow. Well, uh, tell us, <laughs> you got here yeah. in the middle of December. When did you start school? Two weeks after. Mm. Yeah, as can you believe it? As an eight-year-old, my mom did not, she was not playing games with me. And did your teachers and classmates speak Amharic? No, <laughs> I, I, no, but my cousins did go to that school, but we weren't in the same grade. Mm. Um, yeah, we weren't in the same grade. And, um, yeah, two weeks right after school, I was my sleeping schedule wasn't even adjusted. Now that I think about it, and it was a private school, we were un wearing uniforms, but uh, my, I remember the principal at that school was amazing. My mom still thinks her to this day. Really? Uh, right. She remembers all a lot. And she told her, don't worry. And my mom always says, like, she told, she told me not to worry, so I never worried. So, And they, what did she mean by that? I think my mom was certainly concerned about me transitioning and adjusting. Um, but she basically told me I was, you know, I was in good hands, and I was. I really was. I loved going to that school. They took care of me. My teachers hmm. were very understanding. Hmm. Um, you know, I definitely learned a lot about the American culture when I was there. So, the language. So, getting the language. How quickly do you think? Uh, how do you remember the language? Picking up. How quickly you picked it up? I think it did. Like really know it. it took me about two years. Mm -hmm. 
Um, as you can tell, I don't really have an accent anymore. Um, but it didn't take me a while. I think coming at a younger age definitely helped. And being able to speak it for majority of the time definitely helped. Mm -hmm. But with that being said, I was also very glad to maintain speaking my Amharic language. And, and my mom was very adamant that it was spoken at the house. No English was spoken. Um, so she made sure that Amharic was spoken at the house, no matter the situation. She now nowadays sometimes, you know, interrupts my conversation with my friends. She's like, can you talk in Amharic? I'm like, Mom, we know Amharic. <laughs> um, but she made sure that that was something that I never really forgot. Mm -hmm. so, so, yeah. And talk a little bit about how your own education, because education is one of the things, the data you pointed out is, is um, limiting yep. girls in East Africa and limiting their options in their future. Mm -hmm. So you had, um, it sounds like, great public and private education here in the States. Yep. Tell about your learning process and um, what excited you about learning and where did it take you into what subjects? Um, so when I came, I wanted to be so many things. Like everything was exciting to me. I wanted to be a skater at one time. I was into ice skating. I was like, what is this ice skating phenomenon that we have here? <laughs> um, and then I was like, ah, I like to talk so much. Maybe I could be a lawyer. I'm like, ooh, like I, I could be like a defendant, like lawyer, <laughs> uh, defense lawyer. Um, but then I thought about, you know, back home and what really made sense in my heart. And I knew from a young age I just loved being in my community. I was a people's person. I still am, um, like, connecting people, talking to people. Um, so I knew I wanted to be in service, for sure. Um, as I got older, I thought about um, going into medicine. Mm. So after high school, I thought about becoming a doctor mm -hmm. and, you know, working on those women that were suffering, you know, stillbirths and going to that um, facility hospital and figuring out a solution. Um, so I, I was pre-med. I came to BU as a pre-med major for two years, and I struggled you know, quite frankly, I struggled a lot. With and the science classes? With the science classes, and I didn't know if it was something that I really wanted to do. Mm. So I said, you know, I had I went back and forth to myself, and I said, what is it something that, you know, what, what at the root of all, what is it really that makes me happy? And that was honestly working with people and making sure that their um, the resources are being provided to them. So I thought maybe public health is something that I could do. So I switched my major, I went into health science, public health, and so that's what I graduated with. Um, and after graduating, uh, I thought, that's when I went back home for, you know, for five months, and then after visiting the hospital, I wanted to mix um, my love for public health and service, but also learning the, the skill sets of business, mm. how to effectively allocate money, how to manage hospitals, how mm. to... Um, train workers, how to train employees. So I went, to, I started working for a, a financial services company, and that's what I do now. So the idea was to really mix both public health, service, and business. So I'm figuring out on how I could potentially open up my own hospitals back home, mm. um, more uh, centers for women to come and receive the proper care that they need, proper um, mental um, health care, proper psychology after they go through their hospitals. Uh, and just a safe haven for these women. Mm. So that was, so that's a vision behind the school system. That's fascinating. What a great vision. Yeah. Wow. And you've been sort of attaining the skills along the way to do that. 
Yeah, I, I like to think so. I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done, of course. Um, and, you know, it's, it's always a, a learning and growing process. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's so much um, roadblocks in your journey and you feel like sometimes you're not meant to do some of the stuff that you put your mind into. But I, I think it's a testament. Sometimes it's, it's a test. Uh, and success is not a straight road. It's always, there's curves and roadblocks and you just have to go through them sometimes and figure out how to go through them. That seems like a good place to stop. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for having me. Thank you for interviewing me. I really appreciate it. Episode 1 was sponsored by Mass Apparel Studio.